Welcome to the podcast for Great Figures of the New Testament, a Sunday school series offered at the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I'm the Stembler Scholar and host of this podcast series. This is Session 8, The Women of Romans 16. Our practice thus far throughout this whole series has been to examine in an in-depth fashion some of the most well-known figures in all of the New Testament. We've looked at Mary, the mother of Jesus, John the Baptist, Mary Magdalene, Peter, James, Judas, Thomas, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. These figures, by and large, receive considerable airtime throughout the New Testament. In fact, if this were the Academy Awards, we would consider these figures nominees for best performance by an actor or actress in a leading role. But this session is going to be a little bit different. Today, we'll turn our attention to several figures who receive considerably less airtime in the pages of the New Testament. Some of these figures are mentioned only once and in passing, and some are not even given a specific name. In fact, I suspect that even the most weathered Sunday school attender would find the names of these figures somewhat familiar, if not altogether forgotten. Phoebe, Prissa, Junia, Mary, Tryphenia and Tryphosa, Persis and Julia, the mother of Rufus and the sister of Nereus. These women, all of whom are greeted by Paul in Romans 16, at most would qualify as nominees for Best Supporting Actresses. So why study these figures who are given such little attention in all of the New Testament canon? Well, I think there are at least two reasons to consider these figures in our series. First, Romans 16 is easily the least studied chapter in all of Pauline literature. I've heard countless sermons on Paul's view of grace in Ephesians 2, and there are no shortage of Bible studies on Paul's view of election in Romans 9-11. through But never once have I come across a study or a sermon that deals with all or even part of Romans 16. And this alone should pique our curiosity. What is this chapter all about? What what is it doing here? How does it relate to the rest of Romans 16? And what do we learn about Paul in the early church through his greetings to these various individuals? Now, the second reason I think these 10 women are worth studying is this. In this chapter, we see Paul extending greetings to a number of his most dear colleagues in ministry. These would have been his closest companions, his co-laborers in the gospel, those he trusted the most. We might even say that the names we find here in Romans 16 would have constituted for Paul something of his version of a great figures of the New Testament church. But what is so notable from both a historical and theological perspective is that nearly half of the individuals that Paul names are women. Thus, Romans 16 offers the most comprehensive witness in all of the New Testament to the contribution of women to the growth and expansion of the early church. And I think this alone does much to challenge the prevailing notion that the early church, or even Paul himself, only acknowledged male leaders. With this in mind, let's turn to Romans 16 and consider some important background information about this text. First, let me offer a word about its content. As the letter to the Romans comes to a close, Paul provides a long list of personal greetings to the church at Rome. 
Similar personal flourishes can be found in other letters from Paul, but nothing this extensive. Here, Paul mentions by name 28 colleagues in ministry, more than in the rest of Paul's letters combined. And this might initially strike us as odd, since Paul neither established the church in Rome or even visited it up to this point. In fact, some scholars have wondered whether it really was feasible that Paul would have known all of these individuals personally. So how might Paul have come to know these folks? We must remember that all roads, as the saying goes, lead to Rome. Rome, uh, Roman officials built and maintained a comprehensive network of roads that facilitated trade and travel between the east and the west of the Roman Empire. In addition, the Roman Emperor Claudius expelled Jews, including those who believed in Jesus, from Rome in the year 49. And this meant uh, that many Jews, uh, Jewish Christians, I should say, uh, moved east to places like Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi, where they might well have interacted with Paul. So for these reasons, then, uh, it, it is reasonable to suspect that Paul might have had contact with various people uh, who found their church home in Rome. Now, what about the purpose of this chapter? Well, it appears that Paul plans to visit the church in Rome in the near future and hopes that the church will support him in his new missionary journey to Spain. The greeting here thus is meant to pave the way for his future visit. Uh, It establishes uh, that though he had never visited there before, he was by no means a stranger to the church in Rome, but was bound to them through personal friendships. In short, Paul here is networking. He is raising funds and establishing relationships that will pave the way for his future ministry journey. Finally, a word about the implicit context of Romans 16. The text here speaks to an astonishing diversity in the church in Rome. Two-thirds of the names that we find in Romans 16 are Greek names, not Latin names as we might expect. So it's reasonable to conclude that the majority of Roman Christians were not indigenous to Rome, but rather were Greek-speaking immigrants from the East. At the same time, Paul also still refers to others in the church of Rome as relatives, suggesting that they were Jewish. by, uh, by origins. Some names are suggestive of slaves or lower-class socioeconomic individuals, while other names seem to imply a higher level of socioeconomic status. And of course, here in Romans 16, Paul addresses both men and women. The Roman church, then, was the living example of that baptismal reality of life in Christ, in whom, quote, there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus, quoting here from Galatians 3.28. In many ways, then, this is a beautiful picture of diversity in the Roman church, but this diversity was also potentially divisive. Recall that in 49 CE, Jewish Christians were expelled from Rome by uh, Emperor Claudius. In the ensuing years, the church at Rome had become increasingly, if not uniformly, made up of Gentile Christians. However, in 54 CE, after the death of Claudius, exiled Jewish Christians were allowed to return to Rome. And let's just say that the Gentile church leadership back in Rome might not have been thrilled to have this huge influx of Jewish Christians back in their midst. So there was a potential for conflict then between Jewish Christian and Gentile Christians uh, in the church of Rome. 
Now, Paul was well aware of this potentially disruptive situation. And so, throughout Romans 16, Paul stresses the importance of the unity of the church. And we see this in particular in two details of Romans 16. First, note that Paul does not greet his companions directly by saying something like, I greet you. Rather, he is giving them instructions about how they should treat his ministry colleagues. That is, Paul is telling the folks at Rome to greet his ministry colleagues. The Greek here is hospitaste, from which we get our English word hospitality. But what is especially interesting is that the verb is in the second person plural form. We have no real equivalent of this in English. We say you if we're referring to an individual or to a group. But in Greek, there is a difference between the singular and the plural you. So what Paul is saying here is something more akin to what we would say here in the South, something like, all of y'all greet one another. This is a way in which Paul then is trying to create a a mutually hospitable and welcoming environment among a diverse array of Roman Christians. Second, at the end of the passage, in Romans 16, 16, Paul invites the readers of his letter to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, a holy kiss would have been an obvious sign of affection, but what is notable is that this expression is normally reserved for greeting family members. The Roman church, thus in Paul's mind, should be seen as a family, despite the, the different views and backgrounds of its members. Again, this is remarkable because of the tension between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians at Rome at that time. Paul then is urging them, in other words, to kiss and make up, if you will, to acknowledge that despite real differences, they are family through one baptism in Jesus Christ. With this background now in view, let's turn to the first woman mentioned in Romans 16. I'll read here from Romans 16, 1 through 2. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Cancrea, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints, and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. What can we learn then about Phoebe from this short text? Phoebe most likely would have been the bearer of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. She was, in other words, an ancient courier, mail courier. In ancient letters, It was customary to praise the courier so as to secure for him or her hospitality and assistance uh, in a community that they might not have been well known in. And this is precisely what Paul seems to be doing here. He entrusts her with this critical task of delivering this letter to the church at Rome. And so in turn, he urges the believers at Rome to welcome Phoebe in a way that is fitting for the saints or the holy ones, and they are to provide for her needs, whatever they might be. So, Paul essentially then is giving instructions that would have been very common in the ancient world for how one should treat a courier uh, who delivered a letter. Now, there are two other details that are important in these two brief verses. First, Paul identifies Phoebe as, quote, a deacon of the church of Cancaria. Now, Cancaria is a city in the eastern seaport of Corinth, and perhaps uh, Phoebe first became acquainted with Paul when he was in nearby Corinth. But what does it mean for Phoebe to be called a deacon, or in Greek, a diakonon? While it is not entirely clear what being a deacon would have entailed, this term clearly signals an officially recognized office in the church. Paul uses 
this term in reference to his own labor on behalf of the church, and he also uses the same term to describe the work of his ministry associates, including Apollos in 1 Corinthians 3.5. He was signaling then, through his use of this term, that Phoebe was an official and recognized leader in the church of Cancaria. However, a number of English Bible translators are uncomfortable with Paul referring to a woman serving in this official leadership capacity in the church. These translations, which tend toward the more conservative end of the Christian theological perspective, presuppose that only men could occupy the office of deacon. And so what they do then is they downgrade Phoebe's status by not using the English word deacon, but rather substituting servant in this verse. This is the case in the KJV, the NEB, the CEB, the NASB, and the ESV. The Good News translation actually goes a step further and simply says that Phoebe serves the church. She doesn't even have the office of servant, but that she just serves the church. The New Century Version makes her a mere helper. Now, there's nothing wrong, of course, with, being, with serving or helping, but these translations fail to acknowledge the official church position that Phoebe would have held. And I should note that these translations then represent, by and large, later theological conclusions about the place of women in the leadership of the church, and, uh, rather than detailed analyses of the historical and grammatical setting of this text. Now, Paul also goes on to describe Phoebe as a benefactor. Now, what does it mean to be a benefactor, whether in the ancient world or now? The dictionary definition is that a benefactor is someone who gives money or help to a person or a cause. And thus, many translators refer to Phoebe as a sponsor or a helper or even a patron. And this sort of description might seem fitting. Perhaps Phoebe supported Paul's mission in Corinth, or perhaps she was wealthy and became the major patron of Paul's upcoming trip to Spain. The details are uncertain, but we are left uh, with a clear view that Phoebe was essential to the work of Paul's mission. One final note on Phoebe's importance. Ancient epistolary conventions suggest that the responsibility of the courier was not simply to deliver the letter. In other words, they were not just uh, ancient mailmen. Rather, an ancient courier would have been tasked with publicly reading and performing the letter, and and typically multiple times and in multiple places to get the letter's information out to the greatest number of people. Now, part of this would have involved making sure that the audience properly understood the content of the letter. So, Phoebe wasn't just delivering Paul's letter, she was teaching the Romans literally how to read the letter. We might be right then to identify her as the first interpreter of the book of Romans. So for these reasons then, it's right to conclude that Phoebe would have not only been critical to the success of Paul's mission through perhaps financial support, but that she also occupied an official leadership position in the church in Corinth or Cancaria, and that she also functioned as an interpreter of Romans to the church at Rome. Now, the second woman we encounter in Paul's greetings in Romans 16 is Prissa. Here, let me pick up with verse 3. Greet greet Prissa and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus, and who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. So, who is Prissa? In all likelihood, this is the same woman that Acts 18 refers to as Priscilla, 
the latter being a diminutive form of the former, much like Annie is a diminutive form of Anne. Priscilla and Prissa are likely the same person. Now, Prissa is always mentioned along with Aquila, who, who Acts 18 names as her husband. However, two things are of note in the reference here in Romans 16. First, it is customary in the New Testament to refer to women by means of a male relative. So, for instance, we have descriptions like the wife of Clopas, the mother of Jesus, the daughter of Abraham. In each case, a woman is being referenced by, uh, with respect to a male she is in relationship with. But here, Paul refrains from doing this very thing. Now, this departure from the normal literary practice might invite us to see Prissa as an individual uh, that is not connected to a male or as an individual who is more independent. In other words, we get a, stati- we get a sense that Prissa's status uh, and independence might be more prominent than is typically afforded other women. Second, throughout the New Testament, and really also in Greco-Roman literature, when a husband and wife are named together, it is almost always the case that the name of the husband appears first when they're listed. It's not so in this case. Pris's name is mentioned first. Now, does this possibly suggest that, he had a, that she had a higher social status than her husband? Likely not. For Acts tells us that she and her husband both engaged in manual labor. They both were tent makers like Paul. More likely, though, it does suggest, even if only subtly, that Prissa took on a prominent position in ministry, or at least uh, that Prissa and Aquila had a certain mutuality in their joint ministry labor. In either case, Prissa and Aquila are called fellow workers in Christ with no distinction. We might say, in fact, that this was the most prominent ministry couple in the early church. Their memory is honored in Romans, Acts, 1 Corinthians, and 2 Timothy, and they are associated with three of the most important centers of early Christianity, Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. They were itinerant missionaries traveling from Italy to Greece to Asia Minor and then back again to Rome. They also were known as authoritative teachers. From Acts 18, 24-28, we hear that a Jewish man named Apollos, a man eloquent in speech and well-versed in scripture, was filled with enthusiasm and was teaching in the synagogue about Jesus. But when Prissa and Aquila hear him, they take him aside and, quote, explain the way of God to him more accurately. Prissa then, along with Aquila, her husband, were known to be authoritative and influential teachers. Further, Paul says that that Prissa and Aquila risked their necks for his life. Now, what is this in reference to? We can only speculate about a specific historical situation. Does it refer to them being uh, banished from Rome in Acts 18 for creating a disturbance in the synagogue when they proclaimed Jesus as Messiah? Or was it in reference to their heading up a house church in Ephesus, where Paul frequently found himself in danger of mob violence? Or rather, did the danger uh, involve the normal risks of uh, traveling great lengths as they did as itinerant missionaries. In either case, uh, this description that they were willing to risk their necks for Paul's life uh, underscores their willingness to bear suffering and to take risks for the sake of the gospel. Now, the next woman mentioned in Romans 16 is Junia, and we hear about her in verse 7. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. 
Junia and Adronicus were likely married, making them the second prominent ministry couple in Paul's list. Paul refers to them as his relatives. The Greek here is sugenesis. In Romans 19.9.3, Paul uses this word to refer to the Jewish people as a whole, saying that they are his kindred according to the flesh. So here, Paul likely is implying that Junia and Adronicus were Jewish Christians. It's important to note that Paul signals them out for public affirmation in light of the context of there being tension between Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome at that time. Now, it also appears that Junia and Adronicus were in prison with Paul. In Greek, the phrase is my fellow prisoners, thus making a nice parallel. They are his fellow kindred and his, and his fellow prisoners. In any event, it suggests that they, like Prissa and Aquila, took risks for the sake of the gospel. Most notable about Junia is the fact that she, along with Adronicus, is referred to being prominent among the apostles. In all of the New Testament, this is the only reference to a woman as an apostle, and a distinguished one at that. What exactly, then, is an apostle? Most literally, it comes from a verb which means to make ready or to send off for a purpose. In Greco-Roman literature, it can be used in a secular sense and is often, uh, in fact, describes a commander of a naval, naval expedition. The New Testament, of course, nuances the usage of this term to refer to those who have been sent out from Christ to carry out his mission to the world. The office of apostle was not limited to the twelve original disciples, and generally speaking, it, it could refer to any follower of Christ engaged in God's mission. But in practice, this term is typically reserved for those who had encountered the risen Lord and received from him a commission to proclaim the gospel. Being an apostle then entailed acceptance of suffering and the challenge of the difficult labor ahead. Now, as was the case with our discussion of Phoebe as a deacon, some interpreters have found it hard to imagine that a woman could be an apostle. And there are two different ways that these scholars, many of them whom fall on the conservative end of the Christian theological continuum, there are two ways that these scholars try to dissociate Junia from her clear apostleship. First is what I call sex change by translation. Since only men could be apostles, so the logic goes among these scholars, Junia must be a man. And so in English, they translate the Greek name as Junius, and here that S ending in Greek clearly marks a masculine name, whereas the IA ending in Junia marks a feminine name. So in these translations, when we read Junius, we are led to think that Paul here is referring to a man and not to a woman, which would be implied by the name Junia. We see this in a number of different translations, including the ASV, the NASB, the Message, the NIV Reader's Edition, and the Douay-Rheims Catholic Bible. Not surprisingly, most of these translations represent or are used by more conservative traditions that do not ordain women. So is there any validity to the claim that this Junia might really be Junius? Well, the name in Greek appears in the accusative singular form, Ionion, which in Greek can refer to either a man or a woman, since uh, masculine and feminine subjects receive the same case ending 
in the accusative. So how do we tell the difference? Well, it actually comes down to accents. If the accent is what is known as acute and falls on the second syllabus, the name is understood to be feminine. If the accent is known as a circumflex and falls on the last syllable, then we know that the name is masculine. So what does it look like in the Greek? What accent do we have? Well, accents are not used in the earliest Greek manuscripts and really are absent prior to the 7th century CE. However, when accents uh, become common practice from the 7th century on, the Greek manuscripts consistently show an accent consistent with a feminine name. What this means then is that these early writers or copiers or scribes of the Greek manuscript of the New Testament understood this name to be feminine. Moreover, outside the New Testament, the male name Junius is not at all attested in Greco-Roman literature, whereas the name uh, Junia occurs over 250 times in Roman uh, inscriptions alone. So historically speaking, and from a non-biblical perspective, uh, uh, the word here that we find in Greek is exclusively a woman's name and is never a man's name. In light of this evidence, early church fathers overwhelmingly acknowledged that Adjonicus's partner in ministry was a woman. This includes Origen, Jerome, John Chrysostom, John of Damascus, Peter Abelard, and Peter Lombard. In fact, the gender of Junia was not questioned until the latter part of the 13th century. But it was Martin Luther, that great Reformation leader in the early 16th century, who popularizes this idea that the person mentioned here was actually a male. He translates uh, the name as Junius in uh, in his uh, German translation of the New Testament, which became widely popular in Europe at that time. But on the whole, and despite Martin Luther's translation uh, choice here, the evidence weighs heavily against the idea that Adjonicus' partner was a male. And again, we must conclude that these translations of Junius reflect later theological conclusions about the place of women in the church, or really the lack of place for women in the church, rather than careful grammatical and historical analyses. Now, the second strategy used to unapostle Junia involves rethinking what it means for her to be prominent among the apostles. I call this demotion by preposition. The most natural reading of the preposition among here in our English translation is to suggest that Junia was prominent or had a high ranking or was very notable as an apostle, that is, Junia was a distinguished apostle. Apostle, She was prominent among the apostles, meaning that she, as an apostle, had a prominent position. Now, other translations, and once again, we're looking more at, cons- at the conservative end of the continuum, other translations do some gymnastics with these prepositions. The ESV, for instance, says that, quote, they are well known to the apostles, meaning that while Junia is not an apostle, the apostles know about her. Now, this is quite a different thing than to say that Junia is an apostle. The message by Eugene Peterson, a translation that I am actually fond of, uh, but it's not known for its close adherence to the Greek and Hebrew. The message here completely sidesteps the issue altogether and makes the translation choice for you. It translates, quote, both of them, meaning Adronicus and Junia, are outstanding leaders. 
Here, the notion of apostleship has been has completely dropped out. They might be leaders, according to the message translation, but they are not of the apostolic type. In either case, both translations strain the reading of the Greek and goes against a long history of understanding preserved in the early church fathers. That is to say, for many centuries, the church just assumed that Junia was an apostle. What's clear then, in my view, is that Junia is a woman and that she was considered to be an apostle, and a distinguished one at that, by both Paul and much of the early church. This then brings us to the other seven women mentioned by Paul, Mary, Tryphenia, and Tryphosa, and Persis being the most prominent among them. Comparatively less is known about these women, but a few observations are in order. First, note the repeated language in verse 6 and 12 of Romans 16. Verse 6, greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. And then verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenia and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. In Paul's letters, this term is often associated with preaching and teaching. And this term, by the way, uh, work hard or work very hard, is often associated with preaching and teaching, and is used to describe the labor of leaders in the church. Once again, we see that Paul understands ministry as burden-bearing and suffering service. Interestingly, though, here in Romans 16, this term of hard work is used exclusively of what women have done for the church. Now, two of the women mentioned in verse 12 are Trephenia and Tryphosa. They seem to be the third prominent ministry couple in this list of greetings that Paul gives us. But rather than being husband and wife, they were likely sisters, and perhaps they might have even been twins. For it was not uncommon for parents to bestow upon twins the names that derive from the same root in Greek. Also mentioned in verse 12 is Persis. Her name essentially means woman from Persia, following on a custom of calling slaves according to the country of their origin. Though a slave, she was widely loved and respected. Verse 12 refers to the mother of Rufus. Now, there's no other mention of her in the New Testament, except for one tantalizing possibility. Recall that in Mark 15.21, the Roman guards compel a passerby to carry Jesus' cross. The man is called Simon of Cyrene, the mother of Alexander and Rufus. It is th- if this Rufus is the same Rufus named in Romans 16.13, then the mother of Rufus would be also the wife of Simon the Cyrene. Now, we can't be certain here that this is the case, and we must admit that Rufus was a relatively common Latin name. So, it's quite plausible then that these are two different uh, people, both of whom were named Rufus. But if, in fact, uh, the mother of Rufus here in Romans 16 is the wife of Simon of Cyrene, then the preface uh, that uh, to Rufus as being chosen in the Lord, which we find here in Romans 16, might indicate the fact that his father was chosen to carry the cross of Christ at Jesus' hour of greatest need. Let me conclude then by drawing two broader conclusions about the importance of the women in Romans 16. First and most obviously, This text bears witness to the indisputable role of women in the life and leadership of the early church. Here we find female agency in the service of the gospel through a variety of capacities. 
They worked hard, suffered, risked their lives, endured imprisonment, were couriers of letters, were public interpreters of Paul's writing, and they were itinerant missionaries. They labored individually and in ministry pairs. They risked their lives and they worked hard. Some of them served as leaders, some as deacons, and some as even apostles. This is likely, in my view, just a tip of the iceberg moment. It's a small glimpse of what was a larger reality in the life of the early church. What is striking, most of all, is perhaps the matter-of-fact way in which Paul refers to these women as leaders. Paul here in Romans 16, he's not making uh, a defense of the position of women as leaders. Rather, Paul simply takes it for granted, and he takes it for granted that his readers would have taken it for granted that women occupied official positions of leadership in the early church. In this sense, Romans 16 represents a striking counterpoint to those few New Testament passages uh, in which women are described as playing a lesser role than men in the leadership of the church. These texts include ones such as 1 Corinthians 14, 33-36, 1 Timothy 2, 8-15, and 5, 3-16. Many denominations have drawn upon these latter verses to argue that the scriptures disallow women in ministry. And now I suspect that many here need not be convinced that women, that women should be ordained and should preach and teach right alongside with men. But I think that we often think that we must arrive at this conclusion, that uh, this idea that women can and should be ordained, that we must arrive at this conclusion apart from the biblical witness. That in order to get to the ordination of women, we have to take the Bible less seriously, that we have to downgrade our view of biblical authority, or that in somehow we must affirm the ordination of women at the cost of our adherence to Scripture. And for if you're feeling this way or have ever felt this way, we must emphasize that this is simply not the case. Here in the pages of the New Testament, from Paul no less, is evidence that women were in fact leaders in the early church. Paul makes no defense of them as leaders in part because he believed, he just took it for granted, that they, like men, could serve as deacons, apostles, and leaders in Christ's church. Now, second, I think this text teaches us something about great figures in the New Testament more broadly. From the start of this course, the implicit assumption is that great implies prominent. That is, great figures in the New Testament are those figures that are spoken of a lot, that receive a lot of airtime. And to some measure, I think, uh, great is, is an apt title for these sorts of figures. But this chapter teaches us that there are great figures behind the scenes, of the New Testament as well. There are great figures who are only mentioned in one verse and in a chapter that is most often not read by Christians today. There are great figures who never speak in our New Testament and whose names are never known or are often forgotten. There are great figures in cities that Paul never travels to and in churches that Paul does not establish. There are great figures behind the scenes of other great figures, like Lois and Eunice, the grandmother and mother respectively of Timothy, and who brought him up in faith. There was Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, who no doubt was influential in the spiritual formation of her son. There's Mary, the wife of Clopas, who was present with Jesus at the foot of the cross when most of the disciples had fled in fear and doubt. There's Lydia, an independent businesswoman, 
who is the first European convert to Christianity. There's the unnamed Canaanite woman who, in Matthew 15, presses Jesus to heal her daughter even after she turned away. She was turned away by the disciples. There's the Samaritan woman who meets Jesus at a well and subsequently converts almost everyone in her hometown to belief in Christ. Or there are those women from Galilee in Luke 8 whom Jesus healed and then in turn support the disciples out of their own independent resources. In the end, we know little about these women, and each one of them could hardly occupy one of the sessions in a series like this. But it is through them that we come to know the contours of Christ's mission and the vitality of the gospel in the early church. In my mind, there's no doubt that they too are great figures of the New Testament, and thus worthy of our attention and study. (music) 